Our New Testament scripture reading today is in Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 through 46. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all he had and bought it. Amen. Well, it's great to be with you again today. It uh, seems like I'm invited about once every three or four months, and uh, it's my joy to worship with you and to bring you God's Word. From a chapter in which Jesus is describing in parable uh, what his kingdom is like. And these two parables, which were just read before us, are really a, a pair uh, dealing with the, the same subject, what, what the kingdom of heaven is like. And so we want to ponder that together this morning. Let me pray for us, and then we'll, we'll jump in. Father in heaven, we pray that you would speak your word to us, that you would uh, give us clarity of mind, that you would enrich our hearts with the knowledge of your will and of your word, that you would do good to our souls, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, uh, notice Jesus says that there is a kingdom uh, from heaven. Uh, he talks about the kingdom of heaven. And, and whatever all that means, and we're going to get to that in just a second, just reflect on that for a moment, uh, how important it is. Jesus says that there is a kingdom operating in this world that's from heaven, and it operates like this. And we're going to look at that. But all of that means this, that there is something at work in this world that really matters. That's important for us to understand. And so Jesus says, I want you to understand it. So let me tell you what it's like. Now, not everybody sees life that way. Um, many people see life the way that the playwright Samuel Beckett saw life when he wrote the play called Breath. If you're familiar with this 25-second long play, which you can pay good money to see, or you can YouTube it and find variations of it, it's 25 seconds long. There are no people in it on stage, but the stage is filled with rubbish. The, the theater is dark, and off screen there is heard the voice of a, a recorded cry or the sound of a human cry, and then the intake of breath as the lights rise on the stage and then fall as the breath exhales into darkness and a final cry. That's his play called Breath. Some people see the world that way, a place of rubbish, Ugliness, tragedy, despair, nothing good happens, nothing significant really happens except that you're born and you breathe your birth cry and you die and you breathe your death cry and all the rest in between simply stinks and there is no hope. And whatever these parables mean, Jesus wants you to understand that there's something really valuable and really important at work in this world called the kingdom of heaven. And he wants to tell you what it's like. And he wants us to know about it because he wants us to taste it 
and to experience it. And so I want you to consider the kingdom of heaven from these two parables. And I want you to think about the, the meaning of Jesus' words here. How is he describing this kingdom? And then I want you to think what Jesus is teaching us here about God and ourselves in relation to him. And then I want you to think about how we might apply this in our experience. In the first place, the, the meaning of the kingdom parable. He says, in the first place, it's like a treasure hidden in a field. Or, secondly, it's like one pearl of great value. And to get the treasure, a man sells all that he has and he buys the field. And to purchase the one great pearl, the man sells everything else that he has to buy it. Now, that's not very difficult to understand. Finding treasure in a field would be uncommon, though there are, I suppose, those of us who found something like that. But it would not have been uncommon in their day. Why? Because though we put our money in a bank and safety deposit boxes, <laughs> they didn't have those things. And in a world like Palestine that was commonly overrun uh, with uh, war between nations, it was common for people to hide their most valuable possessions by burying them in a field where only they knew uh, the location and could eventually, in times of safety, recover them. So it was a very familiar image to them. And the point is, of course, that a man finds treasure in a field. He values it, decides it's worth it. He sells everything to acquire it, and with great joy he possesses it. And then the second parable, again, he says it's like a merchant uh, and here he's describing a wholesaler who's wise in the ways of jewelry. And the pearl in their day was the most precious jewel, Un- much like we much like we might say our, our diamond, I suppose. Today, uh, these pearls were found in places like the Red Sea and the Persian Gulf, Gulf and the Indian Ocean by divers who tied rocks around their waists and leaped off the boat to sink quickly to the bottom It was dangerous work in order to have as much time as possible to search for those ever uh, valuable but extremely rare pearls. It was dangerous and there were few finds. Pearls in their day were so valued that the Egyptians actually worshipped pearls. In Rome, when Emperor Caligula's wife wanted to show off, she had 36, in our day, $36 million worth of pearls wrapped around her head and uh, neck and uh, uh, wrists and and fingers uh, to show her wealth. And the point of the story is that uh, this merchant finds one pearl of great value that he's willing to sell everything else that he has, in order to possess it. Now, that's bad investment advice, they say, uh, to put all your eggs in one basket, as it were. But that's what he did. He sold everything to buy the one pearl. Now, that's clear. What is Jesus talking about? And, and here, and I want to be fair, I take an interpretation of what Jesus is saying that's a minority view within the wider and Christian community over 2,000 years. Okay? Let me share with you the the two more popular ways of looking at this parable. One is to say that Jesus is saying that the kingdom of God is the treasure. The kingdom of God is the pearl. And you are the man, the merchant, and you must do everything you can to get and possess the kingdom. And whatever that means, 
you have to do, you do it because it is worth your best. And others will say, no, no, you've misunderstood. Jesus is the treasure and the pearl. It's not that the kingdom is, but the king himself. And so religion is less about uh, being really spiritual or religious or moral or doing whatever it takes, whatever that might be, to get the kingdom. No, Christianity is about a relationship. And we know that Jesus is more valuable than anything else. And so we ought to do everything we can to get him. He's worth your best effort. But I want to give you a third interpretation of it, which I think is good news, because all those, those other interpretations, as as true as they are in as far as they go, are but a reiteration of the first and great commandment that you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength and mind and love your neighbor as yourself, that you ought to prioritize God First above all, that Jesus should be your chief delight in life. And the commandments have already taught us that. But the way to see this parable in light of the good news, I think, is this. That you are the treasure. That you are the pearl. That every true Christian is the treasure. That the church is the one pearl of great price. And God is the man, the merchant, who in finding it, valued it, apprised it, and sold everything else that he had to become the possessor of it. Even his own son. And with joy he did it. That you might be his treasured possession. Now, if that's the true reading of the text, it highlights a number of things about the way we think about God and ourselves. Let me highlight four. Number one, it tells you this, that God values his people. That that his people are precious to him. And this is the kind of language God uses in the Old Testament and in the New to speak about his people. If you remember at Mount Sinai, when Israel began to be a, a nation as a, a community gathered before God, God said to them in Exodus chapter 19, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples for all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. Now, Peter, in the New Testament, reflecting on that passage and thinking about the church, uh, describes the church in identical terms. When in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, he says to the Christian community, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who calls you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We, we might ask the question, is it, is it right to speak of people, sinners, as treasure and pearls in God's eyes? After all, we're talking about the descendants of the rebellious Adam and Eve. Treasure? Great value? Yes! That's how God describes his people. Not Because we are worthy when he finds us in ourselves. 
He'd made that clear long ago to Israel in in Deuteronomy chapter 7, in case they got all puffed up with arrogance and said to themselves, well, the reason we're God's treasured possession is because we're so fabulous. He had said to them in in Deuteronomy chapter 7, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any of the other that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you. He didn't look at them and say, you're a great nation. You're a mighty army. You've got lots of folks. And I'm the God of the universe. And I will have the greatest kingdom on earth. I'll pick the best. He said, no, no. In fact, you weren't any of those things. You were the least. You were slaves in Egypt. Downtrodden. But I loved you. And I made you mine. Every Christian may know, the church of God may know, that we are important and loved and valued. When we fail to know that, what do we do? We try to establish our own importance. When we don't believe the good news of the gospel, what do we do? We turn to achievement. Why is achievement so important for some people? Because we think we're less important Without it, why is wealth accumulation so important to us? Because we think we're worth less with less. Why is beauty so important to us? Because we think it makes us more valuable. And it's not that achievement, wealth, beauty are wrong in themselves. You can do a lot with them. You can do a lot of good with them. For God's glory. But is that our motive in gaining them and maintaining them? Or is it really our own glory that we aim at? It's often that those things matter so much to us precisely because we don't trust the glory that we already have in the kingdom of heaven because we belong to God. And this parable tells us that God makes us his own because he values us. He treasures us. We aren't confident. We're loved without these other things. So we're insecure people. All because we valued ourselves so cheaply. But the Lord has not. That's not how he values us. And I want to speak to some of you today. Some of you need a healthy dose of Christmas. You remember that Christmas song, of course, you you do. Oh, holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of our dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared. And the soul felt its worth. God treasures his people, and that's the first thing I want you to see. We're valuable. To him. The second thing I want you to see is that God acquires his people. <clears throat> Not only did he value and determine the value, but he acquired possession. Now, of course, it's true. If he's truly God, he owns everything. He's the rightful owner of all things. And in one sense, all of us are his possession. So this must mean something special. And of course it does, 
that God has chosen his people to be his own inheritance, that he is going to spend eternity with in the enjoyment of himself. And that is contrary to what we ought to have expected. You know, I think the story of the young boy who uh, spends his money and buys a little sailboat uh, kit and he builds himself a sailboat and he puts it on the creek behind his house and on a, a beautiful and glorious rainstormy day, he takes his sailboat at and he puts it in the creek and it disappears around the bend. And it's it's months later, it's gone, he thinks, forever. And months later, he's walking downtown with his father and he passes by a big glass window at a secondhand shop and there sits his sailboat. Now, what does he do? He says, Dad, that's mine and I want to own that again. And his father gives him the money and he buys it and it is now twice owned by the boy. Well, that is what God has chosen to do. Though the fall into rebellion and sin has ruined us, and we walked away from Him and got ourselves lost, God came looking for us, but to get us back, He purchased us. He redeemed us, which is the language of, of going to the marketplace and buying us out of slavery and into freedom into the freedom of belonging to Him. You who were once not a people are now a people because God acquired you. That's the second thing. You belong to Him. He is yours and you are His. Thirdly, this tells us that God gave up everything to acquire His people. That's the expression that's used identically in the two parables. He sold all that he had to buy that treasure, to buy that one great pearl. You know that the value of anything is determined by what you would give in exchange for it. You couldn't pay me a million dollars to go back to junior high and live it all over again because I value it so little. That was my experience. But you also couldn't pay me a million dollars to take one of my children from me because I value them so much. Do you understand what God's economy is? He spared no expense, not even his own son, in order to acquire his people as his own possession. In the economy of God's kingdom, purchasing the church was worth the cross, and he paid it. It was worth it to the Father, who from everlasting had only tasted unbroken fellowship in the joy of love with his Son. To see his Son abandoned upon a cross, crucified in excruciating anguish, blasted with what sin deserves, and hear his son say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that the father and the son would taste interrupted fellowship. So that you could be brought home to him and taste everlasting, unbroken fellowship. In the economy of God, it was worth it. 
to sell his own son, as it were, into the cross to get you. Now, I don't think there's a man in this room who would give his own child in exchange for someone else's child. But God, as it were, does that. So that we would never be abandoned, that we would never cry that prayer. My God, my God, why would you why have you forsaken me? Because he's acquired us at the cost of his son. He pays a great price for us. You are more valuable in God's economy than anything else that he had. Now, the fourth thing you hear in this text is this, the delight of God. Why did he do this? There was no reluctance. There was no hesitation. There was no compulsion. Nobody twisted his arm. He isn't sad. He gave his son for you. Why did he do it? For joy. Because it is his delight to redeem you. As, as the prophet Isaiah, uh, Zephaniah in chapter three seventeen had said, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will, ex- he will rejoice over you. With gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. That's how God delights in his people. Do you remember that it says of Jesus in the book of Hebrews that why did he go to the cross? That it was for joy he went to the cross. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. What was that joy that he contemplated? Bringing many sons to glory. Restoring his people to himself. Capturing his bride and making her his own. Enjoy the father gave his son for you. Enjoy the son gave himself for you. Now this is what this tells us. That God valued you. That God acquired you at great cost. With great joy. How should we respond? Let me suggest five or six things. How should we respond? Number one, make sure you are in this kingdom. Get the kingdom into you. Ask yourself, not so much, have I captured the king as have I been captured by the king? And so ask him, if you don't know if you're in the kingdom, if you're certain you're not yet in the kingdom, Pray less like, Lord, help me to find you. Help me to live for you. Help me to do something worthy of you. And pray more like, Lord, I can't find you, but I need you. Find me. Redeem me. Make me yours because of your son. Secondly, if you are in the kingdom, build your identity on what God thinks of you. The world says you have got to do in order to be. Prove yourself. And then you'll have status. Achieve something and then we'll acknowledge your worth. And God says be and you'll do. God says I give you status. And it bears fruit. Know your status. Rely on your status. That you'll live differently, and you will. Now, 
If you saw the movie Salt, which I do not unreservedly recommend, it's one of those Hollywood action flicks of the summer, and like all action flicks, it, it has its moments. The key to the movie, and I'm sorry, I'm going to spoil the plot for you if you haven't seen it, the, but I'm going to. The key to the movie is to see this idea about her identity transform her. Because she is an agent of the American government who has been taken captive in a foreign country and tortured for being a spy. And she she denies it all the way through. Her husband, who knows nothing about her true story, spends everything in his life persistently to get her back, convinces the government to get her back, still not knowing that she's actually a spy. And as he walks with her, and she is battered and bruised, but as he walks with her back into safe country and gets into the back of a vehicle with her, he says to her, who are you really? You can tell me who you really are. I love you. No matter what you say, I love you. And it's at that moment she has to decide. And she tells him who she really is and what she really did and how she's deceived him her whole life. And he loves her. Because of that, she's secure in her relationship with him. She's got a new identity in honesty and treasured. And it changes everything about her. The entire story that closes the movie for the next hour and a half is entirely predictable if you understand what happened in the back of the van. Everything she does makes complete sense if you understand what happened in the back of the van. Her husband looked her in the face, knew everything and the worst about her, and said, you're mine, and I am yours, and I'm not going anywhere. We have to build our identity on this. The world will beat us down. Some will unfairly criticize you. Some will fairly and justly notice all that's bad about you. Others will judge and reject and scorn. Some of you beat yourself down all the time, telling yourself you're nothing if you don't excel. And God says just the opposite. You belong to me. So say to yourself, Wake up in the morning and say, God is my father. Jesus is my elder brother and I belong to God. And he has made me not merely a subject and a servant, but his child. And he has chosen to bless me forever with the enjoyment of himself. I get from him forgiveness of all my sins, a right standing in grace and everlasting inheritance in heaven. He sends His Spirit into my heart to make me His own, and He will not forsake the deposit guaranteeing my everlasting inheritance. And that is who I am. And He is determined to make me like a bride, beautiful, without blot, without blemish, and present me to his son at the end of days at the marriage supper. That is who I am, whatever the world says, and however badly I resemble what God says about me.
Fourth, be thankful. Be thankful. And if you find yourself weak in thankfulness, don't berate yourself about how you ought to be more thankful. As much as come back to the story and marvel again that you're loved, even in your unthankfulness, by a father who exchanged the life of his son for your soul. Fifth, enjoy being loved by him and love him in return. And you might express that love in a variety of ways. Let me suggest you express that love by loving one another. Love all whom he has brought to himself. Love his treasured possession, his one pearl of great price, the church of God. He's not done gathering her in. The walls can be expanded. The pearl grows in size. The treasure grows more rich over time. And God knows the end of it. But in this world, He is expanding. He is growing. Are we, out of love, committed to building His kingdom through His church as He is? And finally, let me suggest we respond this way. That we show the world who He is. How should we do that? Value people. All kinds of people. Doug Nichols, International Director of Action International Ministries, tells the story of when he had tuberculosis in it and he was placed in a sanitarium in India in 1967. Now, he was a missionary with Operation Mobilization and he got TB, so he was in the sanitarium with mostly uh, native Indians from India and and even there, he aimed to do the work of a minister. He offered people gospel tracts to explain the good news to them. He made copies of the Gospel of John to give away. But nobody would take them from him. He says they didn't like him. They just thought he was some rich American who got stuck in a sanitarium in India. And at one point, for several nights, he would wake up at two in the morning and he would notice a little old emaciated man trying to get out of bed. But the man couldn't stand up and he began to whimper and then he would lie back in bed. And in the morning, the stench would fill the ward and the nurses would come and be angry and smack the man for soiling himself. And everybody despised the man for what he had done. And so the next night that happened, Doug wakes up coughing because of his own terrible sickness and weakness. And he sees the man trying to get out of bed and the man begins to cry softly. And Doug gets up out of bed and he walks over and he, he bends over the man and he picks him up and he carries him to the toilet. and He helps the man and he takes him back to bed. And as he's putting him down, the man kisses him on the cheek. And at 4 a.m., another patient wakes Doug up with a steaming cup of hot tea. And says, I'd like a copy of that booklet, the Gospel of John. And throughout that day, people keep coming to him, asking him for booklets so that they could hear in their own language this good news that he had made visible by love. God made us who we are to show the world who he is. You are his treasured possession to show that he is a God worthy to be treasured. Let's pray.
Father in heaven, we bless you. We thank you. Would you bring great glory to yourself? The God who loves the outcast and the stranger, the weak and the poor, the sick and the rebellious, and makes them your own. Exalt yourself in Jesus' name. Amen.